Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's SCA to hear appeal by President Jacob Zuma in spy tapes case and UN calls for an end to ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. In economics news, South African Airways to shrink services as part of revamp and in sports news, South Africa's Football Association officials to visit FIFA headquarters. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma sets to go to court in a fresh attempt to fend off 783 fraud charges relating to a 1990 arms deal. The country's main opposition party, the DA, wants the court to reactivate the charges. Charges were first brought against President Zuma in 2005, but dropped by prosecutors in 2009. However, last year, the High Court in Pretoria ruled that he should face the accusation. The Supreme Court of Appeal will now hear arguments for and against reinstating the charges. Head of an international court that investigates war crimes and genocide has renewed her call for the arrest of a Libyan military officer alleged to have been involved in the killing of 33 captives. International Criminal Court Prosecutor Fatou Ben Suda issued the call amid conflicting reports over whether Major Mahmoud Awafali has been arrested. The court issued an arrest warrant for him in August. Awafali is suspected of being behind a string of killings earlier this year in the city of Benghazi. Bodies of the victims were found in garbage dumps with bound hands and gunshots to the head. Sierra Leone's government says it will accept 27 of its citizens being deported from the United States because of various crimes. The move comes as President Donald Trump's administration places visa restrictions on four African and Asian nations that have refused to accept citizens deported from the U.S. Sierra Leone's Foreign Ministry spokesperson Emmanuel Torre, who spoke on a local radio station, announced the embassy in Washington will issue emergency travel certificates for the citizens. He says they have been identified as being involved in various crimes in the U.S., including drug offenses. The new restrictions also affect nationals or certain officials in Eritrea, Guinea and Cambodia. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has called the situation of Myanmar's Rohingya people a tragedy and says authorities must end the violence. Some 300,000 have fled for Bangladesh since the outbreak of violence last month. Guterres earlier accused the government of ethnic cleansing. I call on the Myanmar authorities to suspend military action, end the violence, uphold the rule of law, and recognize the right of return of all those who had to leave the country. 
and I urge them to ensure the delivery of vital humanitarian aid by United Nations agencies, non-governmental organizations and others. And finally, a new operational hub for distributing emergency aid to victims of Hurricane Irma in the Caribbean has been established on the island of Antigua. Irma decimated many islands in the region as it barreled west towards Florida, including Barbuda. Almost the entire population, some 1,400 people, have been evacuated to Antigua. United Nations spokesperson Stefan Dujeric elaborates on the assistance from the World Food Programme. WFP is also launching an emergency operation for the Western Caribbeans, including Turks and Caicos territory, also being transported by WFP to both Eastern and Western Caribbean or crucial non-food items, including mobile storage units, tarpaulins, prefab generators, and other logistics and telecom support equipment. WFP has also offered to support the government of Cuba by providing food and logistical assistance where it's needed. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Thursday, September the 14th, the 257th day of 2017 with 108 days left in the year. In our top story, a protracted legal tussle involving South Africa's President Jacob Zuma, the Democratic Alliance and the National Prosecuting Authority is heading to the Supreme Court of Appeal this morning. The President is applying for leave to appeal a High Court ruling which found that the decision by the NPA to drop charges against him was irrational. In April 2009, the NPA withdrew 783 fraud, racketeering and corruption charges against President Jacob Zuma based on the so-called spy tapes. The charges stem from the 1999 arms deal. Dabu Haba reports. The DA asked the court to review the 2009 decision after it gained access to the evidence in the so-called spy tapes that led then-NPA acting head Mukote Dimshe to drop the case. In 2009, Mshe said that the tapes, recordings of phone conversations between officials Leonard McCarthy and Bulelani Nguka discussing the timing of the case against Zuma suggested that there was political interference in the investigation. If Mr. McCarthy's conduct offends one's sense of justice, it would be unfair as well as unjust to continue with the prosecution. In the light of the above, I have come to the difficult conclusion that it is neither possible nor desirable for the NPA to continue with the prosecution of Mrs. Zuma. And this becomes applicable to Tint and others. In the papers filed at the SCA, President Jacob Zuma's legal team argued that former acting NPA head Mokote Dimshe's reaction conveyed a clear message that if every powerful NPA employee manipulates prosecutorial processes to promote political outcomes, the outcome will be the opposite of the agenda. Zuma's lawyers add that this serves as a deterrent to manipulate and promote political outcomes by the NPA.
They further argued that the High Court findings against the NPA have constitutional implications. This implies that the ruling has potential to alter the manner in which the organization functions. However, during the High Court hearing last year, DA Council Advocate Sean Rosenberg disagreed. The case against the third respondent, the prosecution as a whole, was not implicated, contaminated, or undermined in any way by the conduct in question. The decision to discontinue it became inexplicable. The NPA's counsel, Advocate Hilton Epstein, insisted that the processes have been contaminated. To say whether this should occur before or after the ANC's national conference held in Polikwane during December 2007, this was plainly most irregular and worthy of strong criticism. And again, the irregularity of Mr McCarthy's conduct is not to be minimised. Deputy Judge President of the High Court in Pretoria, Obrile Doaba, has dismissed Mshe's contention. Mr Mshe disregarded, without giving reasons, the recommendation of the prosecution team that even if the allegations regarding Mr McCarthy are true, the decision to stop the prosecution was to be made by a court of law. Judge Ledwaba further elaborates. It is thus our view that Mr. Mche, by not referring the complaint of abuse of process and the related allegations against Mr. McCarthy to court, rendered his decision irrational. NPA head advocate Sean Abrahams has argued that the ruling violated the separation of powers doctrine. Similarly, uh, the court had directed that... Uh, Minister, I mean, that the President, I apologise, that President Zuma um, must face the charges um, as per the indictment which was previously served on him. No court can order the prosecuting authority um, to institute a prosecution. Um, we, we felt the court, with the greatest of respect, uh, went a bit too far. Despite tape saga has continued to haunt President Zuma since 2001. It began when prosecutors pursued corruption charges against him related to the arms deal. Zuma's financial advisor Shabir Shaikh was found guilty. President Zuma has always denied the allegations, which are linked to a 1999 arms deal worth billions of rands. I'm Tebuholetzaba in Bloemfontein. It's 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1991. The government of South Africa, the African National Congress and the Inkata Freedom Party signed a national peace pact. That's today in history in the year 1991. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives.
South Africa's Deputy President Silver Ramaphosa has faced questions in the National Council of Provinces ranging from the controversy surrounding allegations that he has been involved in a string of extramarital affairs to the issue of the national minimum wage and a bailout for the cash-strapped South African Airways. Lula Mamadia has more. One of the earlier questions posed to Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa was on the controversy around allegations of a string of extramarital affairs. Last week, when he was answering questions in the National Assembly, Ramaphosa said he would soon address the matter. When the question arose before he could answer, the NCOP chairperson Tandimo Dise intervened. You are within your rights if you wish to take this personal question, but it that supplement is not a supplement that arises from the response that you gave to the primary question. I'm going to leave it up to you, sir, but you are not forced to respond because it's a completely different question. However, Ramaphosa went ahead and answered the question. He told the NCOP that he has received advice from several quarters to lay the controversy to rest. And they said to me, Deputy President, when you address this matter in the West Rand, you said you take responsibility for your actions and you're taking accountability. And uh, they said, you even said you've discussed it with your family, with your wife. And they said, as far as we are concerned, that matter should rest there. And do not, we do not believe you should take it any further. Ramaphosa also said that a special appropriation bill to bail out bankrupt South African Airways will be passed before the end of the month. SAA debt value at about 7 billion rand will be maturing at the end of September. DANCOP member Kathleen Lapuskagne, however, said it would be impossible to pass the bill this month. Ramaphosa elaborates. Any funds being considered will have to be appropriated through the special appropriation bill, which will in part assist the airline's working capital and repay some of the maturing debt. SAA is also negotiating with its lenders to extend maturing debt beyond the 30th of September 2017. Some members also raised questions on the extension of the term of office of SAA Board Chairperson Dudumieni. When the cabinet reappointed Ms. Dudumieni, a chairperson of South SSA Board, in August last year, it was uh, for a year. The fact that she is still the chair of SAA has proven to be illegal. Given that cabinet was not uh, consulted, who appointed her, what will be the repercussions for illegal appointed appointment, what measures you will be take, will you take a deputy president, and what measures should be taken to ensure that her appointment is me immediately terminated. Thank you. Will you step in and remove Dudu Muyeni as her continued employment proof to be a massive liability to SAA because it's all these loans that has to be paid as well as penalties, most probably. And if not, 
why are you yet again unwilling to act in the best interest of this country, rather choosing to once more protect the ANC political elite in this case? In his response, Ramaphosa said cabinet will deal with this matter. He also defended the national minimum wage in the face of its critics. Ramaphosa says the aim of this is to reduce poverty, joblessness and inequality. It is expected to be implemented from the 1st of May next year. And this is going to be a great boost, we believe, to their own lives. And it's also going to be a great boost for South Africa to begin acceding towards a living wage. And many unions say this is a good beginning. And I think we should embrace it and applaud it as such, that it is a start. It is not the end. We now have a baseline from which we can give our people a decent living. South Africa's Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa ending that report by Lula Mamatya. The question of balancing the protection of an individual's right to privacy and the right to freedom of expression will be a key feature in deliberations by South Africa's High Court Judge Raylene Keatley, one of the women accused of being South Africa's Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa's girlfriend, has applied to the High Court in Johannesburg to stop controversial businessman Kenny Gunene from using a website he owns from publishing sexually explicit videos of herself. Keatley is set to hand down judgment on Friday. Nomabulani has more. The young woman is seeking an order that will force Kenny Gunene to remove the explicit videos and pictures from his online newspaper. She also wants an interdict that will prevent him from publishing any new audiovisual material of her in the future. On Wednesday, her lawyer advocate Chipiwa Mabuda said the publication of the material infringes on her constitutional right to personal privacy. He admitted that while the person she's alleged to be in a relationship with is a public figure, she, however, is not. The sexual videos do not feature Deputy President Sol Ramaphosa. Mabuda argued that the right to freedom of expression cannot encroach or violate his client's privacy rights. He submitted that the young woman was not informed about the intention to publish the videos. She did, however, receive a call about the story being written. This was refuted by Gunene's team. Advocate Garth Halley told the court that his client informed the woman about the videos in his possession and the intention to post them on his website. He submitted that the woman did not object. He later conceded that the clips were used without permission of the owner. Halley further argued that the videos were a matter of public interest, as the story being run was on the deputy president's alleged affairs and she had been identified as one of the alleged mistresses. According to Gunene, Ramaphosa dismissed his efforts for a comment on the matter, asking for proof. Hali argues that Gunene then published the videos as proof. This is despite the fact that Ramaphosa was not in that video. When pressed by Judge Raylene Keatley on why the young woman featured in the story, Hali explained that the videos were used to authenticate the story of the affairs. Keatley said she needs time to apply her mind to the matter, even though the matter is urgent. Judgment is expected to be delivered on Friday morning. I'm Noma Bolani in Johannesburg. 44 days to go. go, to, go. to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Oliver Tambo was born on the 17th of October 1917 in the small village of Nkantolo, 
about 20 kilometers from Bizana, Bondoland, and died on the 23rd of April, 1993. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Head of the UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan, David Shearer, says the return of displaced people to their homes in Wau in northwestern South Sudan could provide a model for other parts of the country. Shera was speaking on a visit to the town which is hosting over 40,000 people who have fled their homes due to a four-year-long conflict between government and opposition forces. In April this year, the alleged ambush and killing of a government SPLA general in Wau led to clashes in the town, resulting in the deaths of around 30 civilians. Daniel Dickinson reports from Wau. Loco Loco, a neighborhood on the outskirts of Wild Town, is home to around 600 people who fled their homes in fear. It's one of a number of camps in Wow which are supporting people displaced by fighting. Services like water, food and household items are provided to people living here. David Shearer, the head of the UN peacekeeping mission, UNMISS, met one resident, 15-year-old Ajolo. Where's the house? Behind the block or somewhere here. Do you visit your house? Sometimes we go and we come. And is your house okay? Girl, bed case. Well, casaro. It is safe bed keeping up. Casaro. Anything being stolen in the house? It's destroyed. Fair just to go and bed. Okay. Shunuma seren. They stole all our properties, clothes, everything. Sorry. Okay. All right. Despite her story, the security situation has improved in recent times in Wow. The number of displaced people living in the Protection of Civilians, or POC site, run by UNMIS, has fallen from 38,000 to 32,500 over the last two months. Many of those people have returned home to cultivate their land. Maize and sorghum plants peek over residential fences in Loco Loco, a sign of the plentiful harvest land here can provide. David Shearer says it's necessary to create the right conditions for more people to do the same. That means working with the local government, with our own forces, it means working with the humanitarians and obviously with the people here themselves. Trying to build the trust and the environment for people to feel safe about going back to their own homes where they can grow their own food, but most importantly live safely and raise their kids in safety too. It's a new type of model. It's something that we hope to be able to trial here, but also to spread it across the rest of the country. Those returnees must leave the POCs voluntarily and in a safe and dignified manner. John Mabior Malik works for the Changemakers non-governmental organisation in WOW. He compares the town today with its troubled past. The security situation has really improved in the last three months. WOW from 2016 and early parts of 2017 was like a war zone. The whole of war was full of fighting, full of people killing, full of displacement. You could see a number of houses that were burned, a number of people that were killed littering the streets. And he's now more optimistic about the chance of peace in Wow. We have seen some improvement in relationship with uh, under the current governor and also the national security. There has been some understanding and collaboration between us, the civil society organization. We have held some events, some uh, community dialogue meetings, some uh, forums where we bring these different groups together to discuss the issues of conflict in war. 
and we have seen that there is some willingness from both sides to address the issues. Back at Loco Loco, women welcome visitors to the camp, offering thanks for the support they've received. It's hoped that more services will be provided by humanitarian agencies outside this and other camps as an incentive for more people to leave and, like others, resume more productive lives at home. Daniel Dickinson in Wildtown, South Sudan. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Rise Africa or at, at Channel Africa One. You can also email at info at channelafrica.co.za or SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. Channel Africa from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunya Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The United Nations chief has acknowledged that the situation of the Rohingya fleeing Myanmar after a brutal crackdown by the army is best described as ethnic cleansing. Secretary General Antonio Guterres appeared to agree with his high commissioner for human rights, who earlier in the week used the very same term to describe the persecution of the Rohingya. Guterres called on authorities there to end violence against the Muslim minority who have fled across the border into Bangladesh and their hundreds of thousands. After a closed-door meeting, the Security Council expressed concern about reports of excessive violence and called for immediate steps to de-escalate the situation. Show and Bryce-Peace reports. Close to 400,000 have streamed across the border into Bangladesh since August 25th, forced from their homes and villages that have been razed to the ground. With hope that thousands of kilometers away in New York, pressure would build on the army to pull back. The Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the humanitarian situation catastrophic. I have condemned the attacks made by the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. But in Rakhine State, there have been disturbing reports of attacks by security forces against civilians, which are completely unacceptable. Aid activities by UN agencies and international non-governmental organizations have been severely disrupted. I call on the Myanmar authorities to suspend military action, end the violence, uphold the rule of law, and recognize the right of return of all those who had to leave the country. Asked if he believed that the targeting amounted to ethnic cleansing. Well, I would answer your question with another question. When one-third of the Rohingya population had to flee the country, can you find a better word to describe it? This as the Security Council emerged from hours behind closed doors expressing concern Security Council President for September and Ethiopia's Ambassador Tekada Alemu. They expressed concern 
about reports of excessive violence during the security operations and called for immediate steps to end the violence in Rakhine, de-escalate the situation, re-establish law and order, ensure the protection of civilians, restore normal socio-economic conditions, and resolve the refugee problem. We pressed further, asking if the elements shared with the press reflected the gravity of the situation on the ground, given that human rights NGOs have slammed the Council's inaction on Myanmar. That is what the Security Council has agreed for now. The United Kingdom is the pen holder on all texts related to Myanmar and Council, UK Ambassador Matthew Rycroft. The press elements uh, agreed today are an important uh, first step. Uh, they capture the three big things that all of us uh, wanted to underline. First of all, that there must be an end uh, to uh, the security operations. Uh, secondly, uh, that there must be full humanitarian access wherever it is needed. And thirdly, uh, that the government of Myanmar has, a, has an important obligation in looking to the longer term and implementing the recommendations of the Annan Commission. Earlier, it was announced that Myanmar's de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi had cancelled her trip to the UN General Assembly next week over the crisis in her country. I'm Sherwin Bryce Pease in New York. The Muslim Judicial Council has called on the South African government to sever ties with Myanmar in Southeast Asia. Thousands of people and other interfaith leaders joined the Muslim Judicial Council in a solidarity march to Parliament in protest against the ongoing violence against the minority Rohingya Muslim group. About 200,000 Rohingya have been displaced and another 300,000 have fled to Bangladesh amid a security crackdown following a series of Rohingya military attacks on police and army posts. Chris Mabuya reports from Cape Town. Thousands of people heeded the call to raise awareness about what the Muslim Judicial Council calls the ongoing violation of human rights in Myanmar. Religious leaders from different faith groups took turns in condemning the violence against the minority Rohingya Muslims. They call it a crime against humanity. MJC Second Deputy President Sheikh Riyad Fatah has urged government to act decisively. South African government, you can never sit still. We fought this fight. Kick out the ambassador of Myanmar. He has not put up any apology. He has not said any regret. Cut off all the ties with Myanmar. Our government, when you go to the United Nations, show them where we stand for human rights and get these people to keep on blaming the Myanmar government. Speaking on behalf of the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town, Kenon Desmond Lambrach's call for peace and solidarity. We call on all those instruments to ensure that the minority groupings of whatever ethnic group, that their rights are being protected and that their dignities are being restored. Dignity is not a gift from one human to another. Dignity is a gift from God. Father Michael Lepsley from the Institute for Healing of Memories has called on the United Nations to act and force Myanmar to give Rohingya minority citizenship. We as South Africans have a role to play in the human family 
to say, yes, we are of different religions. Yes, we are of different ethnicity. Yes, we are minorities and majorities, but we believe and are committed to human rights. And we will create friendship across our religions, across our ethnicities. And so we as South Africans can indeed be a light to the world. Father Lepsley also read a letter from Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu addressed to Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi, asking her to act decisively and speak out for justice, human rights and the unity of the people of Myanmar. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, um, Anne Musan. The headline, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma sets to go to court in a fresh attempt to fend off 783 fraud charges relating to a 1990s arms deal. Several gunmen have forcibly entered the Burundi office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights and a senator in the U.S. state of Florida describes as inexcusable the deaths of eight residents at a nursing home hit by Hurricane Irma. Those are the stories making headlines. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. The first African Ministerial Conference on Meteorology, AMCOMET, is underway in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Over 500 African stakeholders are attending the conference that brings together leaders from government, public and private sector representatives, civil society and development partners who are expected to agree on how to ease disaster-related losses and boost their economies through improved weather, water and climate services, known collectively as Hydromet. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Claire Nullis from the World Meteorological Organization. A major conference is taking place at the African Union Commission in Addis Ababa at the moment. It carries on until the rest of the week. It's called the AMCOMET Africa Hydromet Forum and it's bringing together about 500 delegates. The purpose of the conference is to try to bring new momentum to the modernization of weather and climate services throughout the African continent. Obviously, we're seeing all over the world in many countries that, you know, weather-related disasters, water-related disasters, they are wreaking a very, very heavy toll, both in terms of economic losses and in terms of human lives. Africa as a continent very, very vulnerable to weather extremes. It's very vulnerable to natural variations, uh, seasonal variations in climate, but also to long-term climate change as a result of human activities. There are figures that over the last two decades, 
natural disasters due to the weather and water have cost about 10 billion US dollars in Africa. Now that's obviously a very, very, very heavy price to pay and it does, you know, it represents a major um, socioeconomic burden in Africa. And how would you say is the current situation prior to this modernization of the situation of the weather hydromet in Africa? Many meteorological services and hydrological services in Africa They do face quite considerable resource constraints, both in terms of human resources and financial resources. Certainly a lot of the meteorological services in Africa, they come under the Ministry of Transport. And so, you know, they face competition for political attention and for resources against, you know, other transport sectors, you know, such as aviation or roads, etc. So what we want to do with this conference is to raise the political profile of hydrometeorological services and to bring home the message that it really is a very sound investment, you know, by investing money and resources in hydrometeorological services, you know, we really do reap much, much bigger returns. Um, so it, it's a very sound investment. It makes sense. If we can forecast the weather, it means that we can, you know, prevent natural from becoming disasters. So is this uh, going to help with regards to the early warning systems for saving lives? Yes, indeed, that is one of the aims of the conference, is to try to give you know, momentum, a new push to, to early warning systems, which sadly you know, are lacking in many African countries. We've seen the example in the past few days of Hurricane Irma, which caused absolute devastation in the Caribbean, in southern Florida. There are, you know, many, many, many billions of dollars in economic losses and dozens of lives have unfortunately been lost in this very, very powerful hurricane. But what hasn't made the headlines in such an extent is that, you know, in recent weeks there have been a number of weather-related disasters in Africa. They haven't made the headlines to such an extent. And some of them were preventable. Just to give you one example, in August, there was a deadly mudslide in Sierra Leone, which is one of the least developed countries in Africa, that killed hundreds of people. The reason for landslides and mudslides is complicated. It's not just the weather. Certainly in Sierra Leone, very, very heavy rainfall played a contributing factor. The fact that, you know, people are living in densely populated areas, perhaps in areas where they shouldn't be living, you know, also played a part. But one of the reasons that the loss of life was so heavy was that, you know, there weren't the early warning systems in place, such as there are in, in Caribbean countries and in the United States. So we want to improve early warning systems, but for that, obviously, meteorological and hydrological services in Africa, they they need the resources to do so. That was Claire Nullis of the World Meteorological Organization on the line from Geneva, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. 
The National Cleaner Production Center for South South Africa will be hosting its biannual Industrial Efficiency Conference in Cape Town in its ongoing efforts to capacitate industrial and commercial sectors to become cleaner, greener and more resource efficient. The two-day conference gets underway today. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Julie Wells from the National Cleaner Production South Africa. The National Cleaner Production Centre South Africa focuses on helping industry to save resources, which is water and energy and materials and waste. And that is what our conference is about. It's about helping industry to be more efficient with those things, to help them to produce in a more environmentally sustainable way and in a way that makes them better profit at the end of the day because they spend less money on energy and water and other resources. So how is that being done in order to be able to help them to perform some of those operations? Okay. Well, at the conference specifically, what we're doing is we're sharing case studies. We're sharing success stories from companies who have done it already, companies that have saved energy or water, and they're sharing their stories of how they did it. We also have experts who are there to give some presentations on that are good methodologies that can be applied. But after the conference, what the NCPC does is we make available a specialist to come and do an assessment in a plant or in an office block or hospital or other commercial or industrial facility. And one of our experts, after they do an assessment, they identify areas where the company can improve. So where can they change their processes so that they can save water? Where can they change their processes to use less electricity and become more efficient in how they maybe fill the bottles of cleaning fluid that they're manufacturing. There's a range of things, but it all comes down to assessing each individual company. So far, what could be said to have been uh, the progress of some of the operations, uh, more especially in as far as uh, the issues of saving water, as it is that South Africa is said to be a Mm. water-scarce country? Yes. If I can take you for a moment back to 2008, when we had all those load shedding. There was an energy crisis and a lot of pressure was placed on everybody to step up their energy efficiency. And so people became good at saving energy. South African in general is not good at saving water. South African businesses, South African individuals, households, they don't think so much about water. But this current crisis of the drought and particularly in the Western Cape, which is where our conference is, that crisis helps people to start thinking about how they use water. So um, a number of companies have started making progress in improving their water use, but there's a long way to go because there hasn't been a crisis. But their energy is better because there was a crisis. So you see, we wait for a crisis often in South Africa before we think it's all over the world before we do something, but the water crisis is actually going to work out in the end positive because now we we can put in place measures to help companies to save water in the long term. How far are we in as far as promoting sustainable and inclusive growth and achievement of the Millennium Development Goals by some of the companies? Well, the Millennium Development Goals, of course, now are called the Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs that were adopted in 2015 are quite broad. And they talk about everything from food security to gender equality to alleviating poverty. So the companies that we deal with, we're assisting them to address specific goals. And those goals are about sustainable energy, they're about enough water, they're about local economic development that is inclusive. And whilst our mandate is quite narrow, the NTTC has seen quite an improvement in the way that companies over the last 15 years since we were established great improvement in the way companies address these issues. They realize that it's no longer just okay to make a profit. 
they now realize that they do need to act in a more responsible way or there won't be a profit to make in 30 years' time. So we've actually seen, we've seen some good improvements in this area. What could be said about the opportunities in the development of industries that combat the negative effects of climate change and uh, mm. urging South African companies to develop strong capacity in green technologies and industries? Well, the good news is that the various companies are making progress. So what we can say is there are a number of sectors that are faced with significant challenges. I will, for example, give the, the metal sector as an example. They use a huge amount of energy to smelt the metal that they need to forge into various shapes. And plus they make a very large carbon footprint in their manufacturing process. So they face the significant challenges and we all need to work together. So the NCPC as the Cleaner Production Centre, we work together with, for example, the CSIR in, in implementing new technologies and we work with the Department of Trade and Industry who owns us to allow these companies to get an incentive program maybe or the Industrial Development Corporation. This is not something only one of us can fix. And, and so to address the needs of those sectors that are under stress and are in distress sometimes, there needs to be a holistic approach about being more resource efficient, also improving their technologies creating more local product and local content in what they manufacture so that they will be sustainable over the long term. Those who can't make it to the conference, and obviously not everyone can come to a conference even if they are in Cape Town, we will make available all the tools, and they're available free of charge on our website. So if they go to NCPC, National Clean Production Center, NCPC, at any time they can contact us via that website and we will try and assist them no matter how large or small their company is to become more resource efficient. That was Julie Wells, Marketing and Communications Manager at the National Cleaner Production Centre South Africa, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. The Liberia Bankers Association is expressing concerns over the recent passage of a bill in the lower house of the national legislature looking to make the Liberian dollar the only currency in the country. The association says its attention has been drawn to the act of the national legislature to amend the section establishing the Central Bank of Liberia on March the 18th, 1999. The amendment seeks to declare the Liberian dollar the sole currency of Liberia and legal tender. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has sought to explain why it's important for government to bail out cash-strapped state-owned enterprises. He faced tough questions when he appeared before the National Council of Provinces. Ramaphosa remains optimistic. Any funds being considered will have to be appropriated through the special appropriation bill, which will in part assist the airline's working capital and repay some of the maturing debt. SAA is also negotiating with its lenders to extend maturing debt beyond the 30th of September 2017. 
South African Airways will fly 23% of fewer flights about the end of the year as it retires five aircraft. This is part of a revamp aimed at returning to profit. Loss-making SAA, which flies one of South Africa's rather Africa's largest fleets, received state funds in July to help it repay debts. It also depends on government debt guarantees of about 1.5 billion US dollars. South Africa's Treasury has confirmed it will bail out SAA to protect an economy already reduced by junk status by ratings agency Fitch and Standard uh, Global S&P Global Ratings. Kenyan fruit and vegetable sellers plan to fix supply chain challenges as they seek to more than double their share of exports. According to the chief executive of Fresh Produce Exporters Association of Kenya, Hosea Machuki, demand for fruits, vegetables and herbs continues to increase, offering farmers the opportunity to top up the earnings. Data from the subsector shows edible horticulture production in Kenya has increased tenfold in the past 20 years. Volkswagen AG and its Chinese joint ventures, FAW Volkswagen and SAIC Volkswagen, will recall 4.86 million vehicles due to issues with airbags supplied by bankrupt auto parts maker Takata Corporation. The recall comes after the watchdog asked the German automaker General Motors Corporation and Daimler AG's Mercedes-Benz earlier this year to recall vehicles equipped with Takata airbags. The watchdog estimates that over 20 million cars in China had airbags made by Takata, which have been linked to at least 16 deaths and 180 injuries globally. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.7 in South Africa. It's at 9.98 in Botswana and at 9.27 in Zambia. It's also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and at 0.83 to the euro. Gold $1,333, platinum $985 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $54.58 a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with rugby news. Springbok assistant coach Johan van Graan says the fact that the Springboks haven't beaten the All Blacks in New Zealand since 2009 has not been spoken about since the team's arrival in Auckland on Monday ahead of the Castle Lager Rugby Championship test against the All Blacks on Saturday. Van Graan, who has been with the national team since 2012, says this year is a new start for the Springboks as they go into Saturday's test on the back of six unbeaten matches. No, I haven't really spoken about the past too much. Um, obviously, I've been here a few times before. Um, you know, the, the last game in, in Auckland bring back a few, a few memories in, in 2013. Uh, got really close in 2014 with one scrum to go, one minute, um, 14-10 loss in, in Wellington, and, and last year in Christchurch. So you learn from every single test match. Um, 
but like Cardinal mentioned earlier, uh, 2017 was about a new start for, for us as a team. So I haven't really focused on the past. Um, obviously, we want to improve test by test. Um, and this will be our, our first measure against the New Zealand side in New Zealand for 2017. Van Grijn believes that Saturday's test in Albany will be a good measure of how far the team have come this year and that they embrace the challenge that lies ahead of them. Uh, no, not really. I think we've got a lot younger squad than in previous years. Uh, a few different dynamics within our team. Um, you know, with younger guys, you, you get a lot of excitement, uh, a bit more humour, a bit more music. Um, but this is a different team for a different year. So uh, we've got certain things that, that makes us strong with, within our team. Uh, we've got a lot of diversity and you know, that's South Africa for you. Uh, we enjoy each other. Um, and it doesn't matter where we come from or what your background, we're part of the Springboks of 2017. We embrace every challenge day for day, test for test. And like we said before, we can't wait to go out and, and measure ourselves against the number, team, number one team in the world at this stage. On to Football News, South African Football Association CEO Dennis Mumble, accompanied by the football's body's head of legal committee, Advocate Norman Arense, are set to visit FIFA headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland next week as part of addressing issues around the questionable replay of the Bafana Bafana and Senegal 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier. It's very slim. Uh, sitting now with one point after this decision, uh, it is very slim, but you know, given all uh, two months is a long time in football, uh, given all of the things that are happening, um, the, you know, the fact that we have an opportunity now to get another nine points, um, and you know, hopefully with, with ten points, uh, we, we will be able to make it if we, if we can do that. So we'll Literally, even if I have to run on the field and register myself quickly and see if I can play them, but we will have to do everything we can to win those last three matches. Um, psychologically, I think this team will be in a much better position knowing what they are up against. Dennis Mumble says they want to establish from FIFA what happened to referee's decision is final rule. There are some issues that everybody has been asking and and uh, this notion of the referee's decision being final we need to get clarity is that now no longer the case and under what circumstances is it no longer the case if it is just a partial uh, change uh, if it is a wholesale change where the referee's decision now is no longer final uh, what are the guidelines that we now have to use um, but we can foresee many, many problems with that, and we have to raise that with FIFA to, to talk to them about the severe implications of this. Because, uh, uh, you know, in some countries people are very litigious, and uh, we, we have to uh, try and, and see what we can do to, to just not create chaos in football, um, because it has the potential, unless it's correctly implied, it has the potential of creating chaos, and this is really what we want to now raise with FIFA. Um, these and finally the international olympic committee has officially awarded the 2024 summer olympic games to paris and 2028 addition to los angeles following a vote in the peruvian capital paris which has hosted the two previous olympics will stage the event 100 years after its last games in 1924 while los angeles will also organize its third games after 1932 and 1984 
The IOC decided in July to award both games at the same time, following the withdrawal of four of the six cities bidding for the 2024 Olympics amid concerns about the size, cost and complexity of organizing the world's biggest multi-sports event. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. South African court to hear appeal by President Jacob Zuma in spy tapes case. And UN calls for an end to ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Selina Dobong, technical producers Fiso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-630-03327. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern africa is techno with a song titled panna